0: Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in Denton, Texas with Jeff Oliver at your place. That's right. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast, my man. Appreciate it. It's good to be with you. My first question is normally what you're smoking, but because we're in your house and (laughs) you just had a little kind of medical thing going on the last... Month probably right. That's right. Yeah, and I'm kind of that, sidelined. Yeah, we're not doing anything. Talk about what happened, dude.
1: Well, I just again, I, I wish I had a cool story like it was a motorcycle accident or a, you know I was hunting or something, but really nothing like that at all. I just there was a, a sore on my foot and uh, kept messing with it like you're not supposed to do, and it got angry, and so I had to go to the emergency room, and they kept me in the hospital for about a week and um, lots of antibiotics. They sent me home with and. Told me i can't put weight on my foot for the next six weeks well i'm glad
0: you're doing well i'm glad that the infection it sounds like it's gone and yeah. uh that you're on the mend and
1: that's right every medical professional i see nurses and doctors they're like boy this looks much better than we thought it would at this point so really that's always good that's cool
0: so tell me about where'd you grow up
1: i grew up in richmond virginia only child and so a lot of people say, oh, well, that makes sense then. It <laughs> seems you let them know you're an only child. Yeah. But uh, I feel like I was probably a little spoiled, but not as spoiled as some only children I know. Yeah. And uh, grew up there my whole childhood. I graduated high school there, right. You know, living in the same house. What kind of family did you grow up? What did your parents do? Yeah, my, my parents worked for the state in Virginia, it's a Commonwealth, you know, so the Commonwealth of Virginia uh, for the Department of Transportation, and my dad was an accountant, or he still is, I mean, he's retired, but he's still, you know, mentally, he's still an accountant, Mm -hmm. and and, um, my mom worked there, kind of um, managing people to, to put out, to process the orders and things for the Department of Transportation, so it was always a very stable environment, always steady income, there were no highs and lows, like (laughs) like I've experienced with um, jobs. They were always very steadily employed and retired together on the same day at at, (laughs) at age 55. Wow. Yep. Wow. So what kind of
0: kid were you growing up? What were you into?
1: I was into uh, video games, couch potato, which won't surprise you when you see me, that (laughs) I was pretty quiet, I think. I think I, like uh, most kids, probably... Doing what I'm supposed to do and didn't get in a lot of trouble, so probably depends on who you ask. Yeah. I mean, I always got trouble in school for talking too much, but yeah, you know, that's <laughs> um, I've used that for my good now, being able to talk a lot. So yeah, so did you go to college? <laughs> Went to college and um, thought I knew what I was going to do. I had my whole life planned out, you know, and as people do at that age, and which was which was I was going to go into business. I mean, that was going to be my degree and then go into law. I actually wanted to do kind of business law and really saw the dollar signs and not much else of that career, that that path. I just knew that lawyers made a lot of money Mm -hmm. usually, and that's what I wanted to do. So I even had the woman I thought I was going to marry at that point I was dating in high school. Mm -hmm. So I made all kinds of grand plans. And then when I was in college, my first semester, God uh, really just shook me. and How so? And uh, it was through a little bit of being homesick and uh, life struggle, just kind of not being sure of my path and where I was going. And Where were you going to school? James Madison in Harrisonburg, Virginia. So I was about oh, three hours okay. from home. Yeah. And uh, so I remember going home one weekend and just praying. And I had talked to my pastor who had been my youth pastor. So I had a real rapport with him. And talked with him and about life and what was going on and I just remember praying one night and felt God right then calling me to further ministry to deeper to being more than you know what I would say a pew sitter and I expected to be a, a good church member and paying my tithe and doing all that stuff yeah as an attorney yeah. but um, God said no I've got something else I've got
0: you know a life of ministry for you and what did you think that looked like
1: at the time well the assumption i think is just is being a pastor and so i just um did what what i knew to do and dove into the bible couldn't get enough of that i mean that was i'd been baptized as a kid at age 11 or so but i feel like that was really a i don't know if the first wasn't real or you know you can question all that all day long but this was really a a place where i realized at age 18 that that this is this life is meant for more than than just being a dutiful Christian, but really serving God and doing all that you can. You know, Jim Elliott said, kind of burning yourself out for the Lord. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm there yet, but yeah. you know, doing more and being more committed than just showing up on Sunday. So did you transfer then, go somewhere else? I didn't, I changed my major much to okay. my parents' chagrin because they were paying for college. And I switched to, of all things, a psychology major. But I love my psychology classes. That I had taken already, yeah. or class that I had taken, and thought, would well, that make kind of made sense to do that in that field that I was looking to go into, and that that would help with knowing people and how they work, and mm-hmm. and then so when I ended up going to seminary and pursuing that, I went to biblical counseling, mm-hmm. and then it all made sense, and then the psychology degree didn't seem like it was worthless. <laughs> so where would you go to seminary? I went to, well, that's a story too. I went to a seminary that had been started at my, right in my backyard. I mean, it was there in Richmond, Virginia and it was Baptist. i had been raised Baptist, but they were very liberal and I didn't know that. They were just, they, the foundation was not God's word as being reliable. That was not the, the source where they started from to understand life and the world. And I didn't know that until I got there and I was sitting in classes and it was it was just not where I wanted to be. Yeah. I, mean, I recognized pretty quickly but you know I had to listen to some of the teaching and raise my hand a lot and say, "Well, I have a question about that" or "I I'd, I'd like to refute that." And uh, just got a lot of weird looks from the teachers and from other students until after class one or two students would tap me on the shoulder and say, "Hey, I'm I'm glad you said that." Like, yeah. You know, thanks for your supporting class, by the way. But yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, so there were a few of us there that recognized, man, this is not um, healthy. Yeah. In our outworking of our faith and trying to go to into church work or whatever and serving people, this is just not really the way it's supposed to be. So I I was there for about three semesters, and I left. In the meantime, met my wife. We started a family quickly. Yeah. and um i was just kind of bouncing around from job to job and and uh, really couldn't hold a job for more than a year and a half two years because always huh why it was always different reasons i mean one job i just royally screwed up one day and made a string of bad mistakes that cost the companies a little bit of money mm-hmm. and um i uh, apologized as much as i could and they said well we still need to let you go <laughs> there were other times where i just um it just wasn't the right fit for me. Uh, there was one that was about an hour away, and commuting an hour every every day was just mm. you know mm-hmm. it had worn thin. So just kind of one job after another, but always knowing that I I was really called to go to seminary and I really needed to to complete that education and do that. So I feel like that's why the unstable work history, you know, I just because I felt like I really needed to do that. Mm-hmm. And so when I finally did, it was. Crazy. I mentioned my dad, the accountant, who you know everything's everything's done in order, right? A then B then C. I mean, it's everything's got to be kind of sequential in his mind and and in mine at that point. But when we realized, and I can take you to that house and point to where I was sitting, where I recognized that it was time to go to seminary. It was time to pack up and move the family to a couple of hours away to North Carolina, and it was. Where God said, or I said, or somebody said, okay, you need to sell this house. We'd bought our first house, lived there for about three years, which, Mm -hmm. you know, you never sell a house within that short amount of time. And so from that day to literally to sitting in a seminary class, pen in hand, ready to take notes, it was about 10 weeks. Wow. We had sold a house for twice what we bought it for. Wow. (laughs) Paid off any kind of student debt we had, paid off all of our debts. Wow. Um, Gotten accepted to seminary, gotten accepted to student housing. My wife had accepted a job there teaching in a Christian school. My sons had gotten enrolled in the Christian school. I mean, I had gotten a a part-time job from a guy who I'd gone to college with and didn't know was a professor at seminary. And um, so, you know, he had a job waiting for me. Ten weeks, and I was sitting in class going, wow, how'd that happen?
0: (laughs) (laughs) said North Carolina. Where in North Carolina?
1: It was Raleigh, North Carolina. Wake Forest, specifically. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I went to Southeastern Seminary there. Yeah. And uh, how long were you there? Four years there. Yeah. We've moved every four years of our marriage. It's like we're on the lamb or something. We're not. We're not <laughs> running from anybody. We're just every four years. we've. It's just been time. I see a lot of books. Yeah.
0: Where we are, and games, and books, and... That's a lot of
1: packing, dude. It is, and I've tried to thin out just this one out of the four bookcases that have my books in it. I've tried to thin out this one right behind me, but the disclaimer is, and you know, others who have been to higher education can tell you, this doesn't mean I've read all of them. <laughs> I just, you know, some of them just look good on the shelf. Yeah. But it also doesn't mean that I agree with all of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know? But I just, um,
0: which are, I believe is a sign of a good library. Is yeah. that, you know, you, for the books you disagree with, you're still stretching yourself.
1: And always, I picked this up from a pastor I served with and who mentored me. He said, if there's one that I really don't agree with, i sure to make notes in the margin. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So if somebody were to borrow that book or see it on my shelf, they'd see my notes going, Oh, he doesn't, he doesn't agree with this at all.
0: Yeah. yeah. So after your time there, where'd you go?
1: What you oh, do? Yeah, I went to actually with that pastor I've just mentioned. Um, there was a church plant from our church in Raleigh. They had started a church in Del Rio, Texas, and I had never heard of Del Rio, and but I always liked Texas. I mean, something about this, you know, little only child boy growing up in Virginia, and I, I don't know what it, westerns or. Something I just always kind of set my sights toward Texas. Wouldn't that be cool? And I'd, mm-hmm. I'd wear the cowboy hat and all that stuff, and you know everything I knew about Texas, which was nothing. And we liked Dallas Cowboys. That was it. But I'm uh, sorry, <laughs> and I said liked. So I, I'm not sure where we stand now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I started looking into that that church plant, and I think we had started talking to that pastor already. But I say we, not really, just I did because my wife had told me. Whenever we got married and kind of early marriage, she says, look, I'll go wherever you want to go in ministry and stuff. She said, oh, just two things. I never want to live in Texas and I never want to learn Spanish (laughs) because Spanish had been terrible for her in school and it was just a nightmare. So she wasn't going to touch that at all. Never wanted to be in Texas. I don't know why. She just didn't. So God calls us to a border town in Texas. So, and she didn't go kicking and screaming. She was ready for it. Really? You know, in fact, the pastor from that church in Del Rio had spoken at our church in Raleigh one day and she listened to his story and, you know, it wasn't a travelogue. It was, it was, you know, how great the place is and how fun the people are. It was like, this is a dark, spiritually dark place. It's really hard. There are a lot of, you know, hard issues and drugs and there's, um, immigration is always an issue there and there's crime. And and so we're leaving church that day. And she says, Hey, have you ever thought about us going to Del Rio after seminary? Um, yes. But I said, I wasn't allowed to bring it up. <laughs> but she says, I think we ought to think about that. Wow. So we looked into it and pursued it. And I got there and the pastor's like, what do you, what do you want to do here again? I mean, he was willing for us to move there, but wasn't sure how I'd be used. So there was a a lot of growth there, a lot of mentoring from him. And I still consider him a mentor and call him often. But I worked, um, I served in music and leading worship there and with youth. And we set up a counseling center there. So I was fresh with a biblical counseling degree. Yeah. I had, you know, some regular clients, I guess. And we served the church that way by, so he would send, he's a, I always teased him for being a one and done counselor. You know, like he'll counsel with somebody one time, but he's, he's made him so frustrated or something by the end of that counseling visit that he's done. Yeah. You know, I don't mean to say he's not, he's not gracious or, you know, but it's just like, well, here's what you need to do. Oh, just do it. You know, it's like the, you've seen the parody skit with Bob Newhart you know and he's a it's one of these skits where he just he just says stop it stop it you know (laughs) well you want to do that stop it (laughs) you know that's that's
0: the remember I think there was an SNL skit
1: yeah that's, that's 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 all the counsel we want to give right But but so I took a little more time not the you know there's the other side of counseling where somebody takes two years in counseling and or three or four or five years where they just keep coming every week and you know Playing on the couch and hearing the counselor say, "Mm-hmm, mm-hmm." What else? You know, and that's kind of yep. it. So there's, I'm somewhere in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> but we had a, a great experience in that church, and still, a lot of people who are still there, and, and the church has grown. So we don't know a lot of people who are who are there in that church, but we just we still keep connected to a lot of that. That's those are good days for us, our family, the four years in Del Rio. What we what years were you there? Two thousand nine when I was finished with seminary to 2013. And then where'd you go after that? So within, well, towards the end of that time, the church association, our church was part of out of, I think it was about 45 churches. uh, A third of those didn't have a pastor at that time. And so it really was a tough place to do ministry. And so they didn't often keep pastors for very long in any of those churches. And so my Pastor looked and he said, look, you've, you know, we've um, ordained you and you're good. I've had you preach, you know, about once a month at that point in that church. And he said, I think it's time for us to kick you out of the nest. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we've got other able preachers here who are, who can do that side of things. But I really think it's a good opportunity for you to move on and do your own thing and lead your own church. And so we moved about an hour away from there to Eagle Pass. And uh, that was even a little tougher, I think, in, in terms of culture. And for one thing, the, the people in Del Rio, which in both places are about 95 to 97% Hispanic, also about that same percentage Roman Catholic, and so very different for us to be in. But most of the people in, if you talk to the people in Del Rio, they really wanted to speak English with you. There was a an Air Force base there. So a lot of that kind of influence, but most of the people there, they wanted it they skewed more towards wanting to speak English with you and, and American culture. But then when you go just an hour away to Eagle Pass, it was a very Mexican town. And if you if I spoke to somebody in my terrible broken Spanish, then try to speak English to somebody, they'd speak back to me in Spanish. And so there was never a, kind of a desire to do that. They were just very Mexican and that's who they were as their identity. Mm-hmm. So nothing wrong with that. It was just mm-hmm. hard for us to get into that. Yeah. Yeah. How long were you there? We were there four years. Okay. So I'm around. telling you, it's like it's like <laughs> to the day almost. So 2017, where'd you go? 2017, we had no idea where we were going to go. I just knew it was time to move. Why? Well, I can tell you that it, the toughness of that ministry there which I kept thinking well I can do this part of the reason that I felt like it was I feel like now that it wasn't working out is that I'm depending on myself too much to you know if, it, if anything's going to change within this church within our community it's got to be on me and my efforts and my family's efforts and so that was that was tough on my family what was too. your vision for the church I wanted a, a church that uh, it sounds so cliche, but that a church should have looked like the community that we were in. Mm-hmm. And the people who had been in that church for the longest time thought that the church should be kind of a lily white island in the sea of <laughs> Mexican and Hispanic people. Mm-hmm. So it was um, just not the same vision at all for them. Mm-hmm. And I just I wanted to do outreach there. I wanted mm-hmm. to to uh, growth, of course, would be a byproduct of that, but I just, you know, really reaching into the neighborhoods and specifically going into neighborhoods that where I felt uncomfortable just in terms of my inability to speak a lot of Spanish, but I was learning, you know, we were always learning, but just going into those places and trying to reach those people. And, you know, within the music, I wasn't being translated in the sermons, but within the music we'd sing, you know, within one song a chorus of english and then a chorus of spanish and even people in my church recoiled against that they you know why are we singing spanish well you know nobody here does that well it's to be welcoming and to be inviting and i you know i i tended to say these off the cuff things that maybe i shouldn't have you know not as i say not not my most spiritual moment so they said, well, you know, the music, I really didn't like the music today because it was too much. I said, well, the music's not for you, <laughs> right? We're not doing the music for you. First of all, it's worship. And second, if there is somebody whose heart language is Spanish, they'll hear it and they'll understand that more uh, closely than than they ever would in an English chorus or verse. So, especially for a town where it's just, spanish where the
0: hispanics there would want to speak in spanish right
1: right so you know it, it was um i can tell you another incident that happened there that so it looked like at about the three and a half year point that okay we need to probably transition this is not working for us i've really tried we've tried all kinds of efforts and it's just not catching you know it's no traction at all and so i was at a pastor's conference and I was hearing this pastor, you know, it's a strange setup. So it's a preacher preaching to a room full of preachers, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, (laughs) and I I was just taking notes and and really into it and understanding what he was saying. He said at one point, I remember him saying, I can almost just picture the scene where he says, pastor, it might be time for you to leave your church. It could have been just him and me in a room. And I just kind of, it just hit me. And then Within an instant, I mean, I, I kind of, I bowed my head and I was closing my eyes and hearing that and kind of resonating in my mind. And I saw the front of my church and, you know, the front door of the church. And I saw the word Ichabod over the top of the door. And I knew that was significant, but I hadn't read that passage in a while. It's, um, see, I'm supposed to know this first Kings. No first Samuel. Okay. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. Um, but It was, um, so the story is where the Ark of the Covenant has been taken from Israel and where that that word Ichabod comes from. The high priest is told that the Ark had been stolen and that his two sons had been killed in battle. And when his daughter-in-law, whose husband had just died, his daughter-in-law was pregnant. When she gave birth, she was so overwhelmed with that grief of hearing that news that she gave birth there, and she named her son Ichabod, which means God's glory has departed mm. from Israel. Mm-hmm. So, in that moment, to hear or to see that word Ichabod written over top of the door of my church, I went, "Whoa!" Yeah. So then, and you think, well, it's kind of weird. Maybe that was stuck in your mind somewhere, and you just put those together. So then, I I went up to one of the leaders of that convention and speaking with him. And I said, look, you know, people have told me I need to come and talk with you and and get prayer. He was kind of known as the prayer warrior that everybody went to. And I said, look, um, I can't tell you a whole lot about my church. I mean, we didn't have time really to go into that, but I said, could you just pray for me and my church and what's going on in our community? And so he puts his um, big old hand on my shoulder and we start praying. And he said, uh, you know, he, he prayed a beautiful prayer. And he said, at one point in there, he said, and God, I don't know if you've written Ichabod over his church. Well, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so that shocked me. And he and I hadn't compared notes at all before yeah. that. So I just thought, okay. So Confirmation. It was, yeah. It was just time to transition. And I went away for a few days just by myself to read and think and pray and confirmed all the more. So we, we were on our way out. And I let the church know they let us... Be there, living in the parsonage and such, for about six months. After that, mm-hmm. and for us to transition. And where'd you go? And so then I didn't know where we were going to go. I mean, we kind of we knew we were going to point it north and maybe um, you know live wherever the U-Haul ran out of gas. Or we we said no idea. You know, like Abraham, go to a place that I will show you. We just we were praying and thinking about where to be and kind of hitting the the city centers. You know Houston, Austin, Dallas. We don't know kind of where we're going to head. Staying within Texas, though, and within that transition time, a friend of mine who I uh, sold cars with before—that's that was my, you know, so-called real job when I was in Del Rio—and uh, never want to do that job again, by the way. But he had uh, been the sales manager there in Del Rio, was now in Dallas, and he says, "Look, you know, see so you're in transition now, and you need something to do. I've got a job here if you need it." So Mm -hmm. that was really our only thing that says, I mean, I was looking at, into other churches and applying and even interviewing at other churches around and just couldn't find anything. I just figured that was God saying, you know, you need to pause for a while. You need to back off, heal, Mm -hmm. regroup, get your family right. That was key. Mm -hmm. And so I went in there and and, um, I went in and, and into the job and stood around and didn't sell cars all day. (laughs) So (laughs) that's not the way that's supposed to go. But um, when I showed up and they invited me not to come back after a particularly bad month in car sales, I was looking again. And uh, I had actually, when they told me that uh, my services weren't needed anymore there, I had already accepted another job. I mean, I was still applying and I'd already accepted another job with uh, Right Now Media as a call center and ended up working on... Putting together some of their simulcasts events that they had, so that was a very good job, and it was a place to do that healing and just feel affirmed and encouraged, and and uh, so that was a, a great time working there and and uh, getting back into you know what was real ministry for me. Yeah, how long were you at right now? Uh, about two years. Okay, was looking around and they were transitioning too; they downsized my team and told me that I would need to move on. So after really being a positive experience there, they, they said, you know, we're, we're going to go with, um, just a smaller team there. And we're going to, so they gave me four months of severance, which I thought was just very generous and gracious. And I thought, well, wow, if I can get another job like right now, mm-hmm. I still have this four months of income here. And, you know, I've got a great plan with that money. And, uh, hadn't consulted God about it at all, but I figure I have a much better plan with it than he does, right? (laughs) Not so. I mean, and it was, Steve, it was right, I mean, to the day, literally to the day of starting a full-time position where I am now. From four months uh, before I had gotten let go of that job, it was four months of the day. Wow. And the money never dipped. I mean, you know, we were never without. Yeah. So... I knew this was different, though. I mentioned all the job losses and things before. And my wife is the budgeter. She's the planner. And I just, you know, when we got married, she looked at my bank account, my check registry or whatever, and there was nothing in my check registry for a couple of years. (laughs) And she said, well, how do you know what you have? I just go to the ATM, and if I have money, I get it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) and I still kind of work that way. I mean, if there's money, if I can see cash, then it's free. You know, it's, it's, it's available. Yeah. But there were always times that when I would come home and I, you know, lost my job today and there was always a crisis and there was always, you know, she starts moving money. She starts, if there was any to move and she starts stretching whatever's left and, and just very gifted at that. Mm-hmm. But it, there's kind of always a sense of panic about it, you know, and. We're not quite going to make it and then god comes through in miraculous ways that he's he's not over our marriage and but this time i was coming home she wasn't going to be home I had had taken our girls out somewhere and i said uh i called her just, just in case she was going to be home when i got home and i said uh, i just i didn't feel like being at work today and i didn't want to tell her on the phone that i'd gotten fired right and she said, "You're okay, right? Yeah, everything's fine. I just I'll see you when you get home." And then she called as I pulled into the driveway. I don't know how she knew that she was still gone. And I, she called and she said, "Hey, uh, you're okay, right? Everything all right? Yeah, I'm fine. I just didn't feel like being there." She said, "I mean, you still have your job, right?" Uh, <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, immediately she said, "That's fine. God, God must have something else for us." Mm-hmm. And man just yeah. watershed moment i mean that's yeah. night and day difference from any way she'd ever responded before really in that situation it was obviously just powerful growth in our marriage and in our faith and confidence in god's plan was
0: it was it the previous track record that kind of showed her that okay this door's closed i know another one's come, going to happen was it those previous experiences that kind of put her in that place where she had that reaction or have you guys talked about that
1: yeah i'd have to say it was that you know those times of you know when your faith is shaken and you're and stretched and you're you feel like there's no other place to go and then god shows up i mean like indiana jones and yeah. you know just uh, seemingly at the last minute but never never early or late right mm-hmm. i mean just on time and i'm gonna start preaching here watch out but you know it's uh Faith in that God's got a plan and He'll provide for us. I mean, He's when we were at a point of no money and not knowing how to pay this one bill we were holding on to that we got a check from somebody my wife hadn't worked with in years, and uh, to the penny of what that bill was. There was a time in Del Rio when we were sitting at the table, literally eating our last meal, and you can tell I don't miss a meal. But we were eating our last meal there and. We just said, well, we can eat this. And I think it was beans and rice. So it was really the last meal. And we had um, no idea what, what was next. And somebody knocked on our door with bags and bags of groceries, even things we you know, wanted, not needed. But there was you know, little things for our kids. And there was October. So she bought us a pumpkin, too. Like, we don't need a pumpkin. But it was, it was just uh, this kind of a wink from God saying, hey, you know, I've got you yeah, we'll take care of you. So, where are you right now? So I'm uh, I serve with um, Hope for the Heart. I'm on the radio program at Hope in the Night, which is a daily program to do really biblical counseling and helping people with that whatever issues that people call in with. Um, so you've
0: come full circle with that biblical counseling, right. counseling
1: degree. Yeah, and I feel like you know it's strange when almost everything you've done. I mean, except from bagging groceries. I mean, that was my first job I didn't mention, but, you know, almost every other job I've ever had converges in this one role that I'm in now because they would look at my resume. I remember when I was applying and interviewing, they said, oh, and you've done this work before? You've been, you know, you've been a pastor and you've done radio and you've done your biblical counseling degree. And, and so all these things, and they said, well, this is perfect. Right? We couldn't have, you know, ordered somebody better than you for what roles we have available. Yeah. And so that just really worked out that I was in the right place at the right time. I mean... And what year did you start with them? That was two years ago now, so 2019. Nice. Yeah. And so I'm uh, the co-host and kind of the announcer guy voice on, on the program. And June Hunt is the counselor on there. So I will screen people and get them ready for that call. and They make an appointment for that program for a particular night. And she takes care of one caller per hour you know when she started that program 26 years ago somebody said oh no you need to handle somebody in about three or four minutes you need to do 10 to 12 callers an hour and she said i can't take care of people in three four minutes i mean they were thinking you know top 40 radio Mm -hmm. you know you're in and out of a song in that amount of time right but they said well it won't work you can't do it like that an hour nobody's going to listen to that well it's 26 years later (laughs) still doing it. So, yeah. So you mentioned you got kids. Mm -hmm. Talk about them. So I love to talk about my kids. We have five. And as I mentioned, we, we started right away. I mean, Jonathan was born, you know, within nine months of our wedding and, you know, so right away we were, we didn't have um, this time of, that we had expected of a couple of years. A lot of people say, you know, when we first get married, we'll wait a couple of years and start growing our family. Well, we didn't have that at all, but wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, he was our pride and joy. We wondered when our second child was coming along, how will we be able to love this one as much as we love Jonathan, our first child. And of course that, you know, God gives you that ability and that grace to do that. So Jonathan's now 22. He's working, going to college amazing graphic artist and uh, I had no idea what work he was doing when he was still living at home and going to high school and all I saw him was playing around on a tablet you know and I thought what are you doing I mean you know get out and do something but he was working on things then sharing ideas with people getting better at what he was doing and even starting to sell some of these this art to mm-hmm. bands these um screaming metal bands the Christian bands but just I mean just the music and it's just not anything he ever gotten introduced by me (laughs) you know but he entered contests from them for album art and t-shirt art and started winning so i mean he's just doing great i'm I'm very proud of what he's done and kind of growing his uh, brand and starting to get uh, sought out for those kind of things Mm -hmm. i think that's fun for him to see that and just know that he's already got some success there Mm. Um, my 18 year old son jackson is heading for the marines in july and he's going to boot camp and he's so excited about that he's been involved in uh, marines here doing uh, their physical therapy not physical therapy uh training in twice a week he'll go over there and and uh, spend a couple hours sweating and and then he comes home and does pull-ups and push-ups and sit-ups. And, I mean, he's dedicated. I've just never mm. seen that kind of drive. But he's he's not going to fall behind in the pack, you know, when they start to get doing that stuff in boot camp. He's going to be, mm-hmm. he's, he's a leader. And then there was a gap. And then there was a gap. Because Jackson was praying for a baby sister and um, praying, believing that he'd already received that, and then telling his teachers, Hey, my mom's having a baby girl. And so we started getting congratulated. We had no idea what, what anybody was talking about. We had, that was far off our radar at all. We're done. We got two boys and we're done. And then, I mean, I just, we got pregnant and, or she did, I didn't, but, uh, she got pregnant and, uh, we thought, well, let's see how this goes. And then we got to that point in the pregnancy of getting ultrasound and finding what gender this child is, and hey, it's a girl, and so Jackson was overjoyed with that, and realizing his, his, and as he said it, my, my prayer came through twice. We're having a baby, and it's a girl, so <laughs> he just knew God was very specific in doing that, and so his relationship with my daughter, Rebecca, who is now almost 12, can be a little contentious at times, so he always teases her that it wasn't, she's not the one he was praying for, <laughs> so. It was, so we have, then Hannah is, uh, she just turned nine the other day, and uh, she's wonderful and, and uh, just got a great gentle spirit. She can get a little aggressive at times, but she's just, she's a very tender heart. She told me on one of our daddy-daughter dates, we're just talking about things, and I try to draw them out a little bit, you know, in these times that I just have one-on-one. And I said, so who are you, Hannah? What What do you think people think about you and... She said, I just, I just know that, I don't know if she used the word purpose. She said, I just know that God made me to bring joy to people. Mm. God. I mean, mm. I just, I was driving. I could have just sobbed. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I said, wow. I mean, so tell me about that. She said, well, I just, I just know that's why God made me. I just want to bring joy to people and just make people happy. Mm. <laughs> All right. I mean, you can't script that. I mean, that, that, uh, I don't know where that came from, except, yeah. as I always say, somebody's discipling these kids. It must be my wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, that just really was a, that was an amazing comment there. But then Miriam came along a couple of years after Hannah. Miriam's now seven. And she is the one who Jackson says, and, well, okay, you know, Rebecca's fine. Hannah's fine. But yeah, Miriam's the one I was praying for. <laughs> so we said, well, that's three, son. You can go ahead and stop. <laughs> praying about it, right? <laughs> so we realized that we had two boys, then two girls, and then we realized, or I realized, that, okay, the, the balance of power, males to females, all hangs in this one child, right? So now I'm terribly outnumbered. <laughs> and one boy moved out, the other boy is about to move out, and there's about to be a whole lot of um, estrogen. estrogen in this house. <laughs> and uh, I kept uh, begging my son Jackson if he would stay maybe and and not upset the balance here but he's like no I'm moving I kept upping the ante okay I'll I'll buy you a car I'll give you you know a thousand a month yeah (laughs) no he said you don't have enough just stop (laughs) he's moving on so you're a Spurgeon guy yeah love it what
0: drew you to Charles Spurgeon and
1: I can say you know maybe and I don't remember any of them maybe there was a quote randomly in all the preaching that I grew up with and just going to church and somebody quoting Charles Spurgeon, maybe, but really when I got to seminary, I started reading a lot of, I mean, a lot of all kinds of authors and many authors, but really resonated with this one author who's, you know, late 1800s preacher from London, who I just read and just the depth of it and would have to read sentences over and over just because of the richness of what he was saying. And I just, it struck a chord with me. And so reading that and, I and mean, you look at me now and say, well, yeah, that's a Charles Spurgeon look-alike." But I only had a goatee then. Mm-hmm. So not so much then. Yeah, But, but I, I was reading a lot and uh, everything I could get my hands on to read by Charles Spurgeon. And then it's funny, as I started growing out my beard, people said, uh, you know, you kind of look like him. And just kind of the, you know, barrel chest, wide jaws and the beard, of course. So people said, you start, you kind of look like him. And then I just wondered what that would be like to perform him at certain places and, you know, some of these cigar lounges or because Spurgeon was a cigar smoker, some of these places or at, uh, you know, a seminary message somewhere. There are plenty of seminaries here in the Dallas area. So I I always saw it as performance, Mm. really, and and didn't, didn't really think of any other aspect of it except, hey, I like this work and I can do this. I've done, you know, a little bit of, really low-key amateur theater kind of things. So I just had kind of had that desire to do that. And then I was in our church one day and uh, in our Bible study group. I mean, it's like a hundred people. He's still speaking to a big room of people, but he's speaking, the teacher is speaking there one of the pastors in the church about, you know, young men, you're a lot of your seminary trained and you'd like to be, you'd like to take the pulpit from, for our pastor once in a while. And well, that's probably not going to happen, he tells them. <laughs> but, you know, if you are looking for a place to minister, and to serve, you know, start writing a blog. Start writing out things daily. Start, you know, write, get something started on a book. Teach the fifth grade boys. I mean, do something in terms of ministry. And that's where it struck. I went, oh, the Spurgeon thing, this is not performance. This is not about me. This is ministry. And if I miss teaching and preaching which I had loved doing before, still love any opportunity to do that. This is just preaching someone else's words and words that people have largely left and forgotten. You know, I mean, in certain circles, you say Spurgeon and it's like, oh, of course, you know, it's like somebody's next door neighbor, but I mean, they know him. But in many places, people are like, Man, who's that? I, I may have heard of him or, but there's so much of a depth of work there that I mean, it's some 3,600 sermons for one thing, you know, so you can read a sermon a day for 10 years, right? And people just, I think, have, have left that and don't read those things anymore. So if I could come up with some way to present that in some way that people would watch and see YouTube videos or hear it on a podcast format or something of the morning and evening devotions that Spurgeon did, if you could hear three or four minutes of something as a devotion one day. That would just be a great opportunity, I think. So yeah. I started recording those things, and I, I would still do a live performance. I've got the the full get up, the period suit and bow tie, and all that.
0: <laughs> so, if people one, give a short little introduction for people that don't know who Charles Spurgeon was, and then where do they find, you know, more of what you are doing with
1: okay with that? So. Charles Spurgeon grew up in a home. Actually, his parents had too many kids, and they shipped him off to his grandfather, his grandparents, and his grandfather was a preacher. So he would have these long periods. Charles did long periods of his day, where he was in his grandfather's library and just pulling books off the shelf. And there's a, you know, there's some great stories about him just reading and not quite understanding what it was because he wasn't a believer yet. You know, he really hadn't come to faith yet, but he was interested and he was always gripped by the, the idea of sin and what it did to a person in terms of their, their eternal destiny and realizing he wasn't there yet, but just really trying to grow and, and learn and he was um, converted on a snowy morning. He was about fifteen or sixteen and it was the only church or the closest church he could get to. He said, I when I could walk no further, you know, there was a little Methodist church down the lane and He went in and he was one of maybe 12 people in the church and was recognized as being new there and preacher hadn't shown up that day there was some he said a tailor or a cobbler you know (laughs) he wasn't sure what the guy did but he was like the only guy who showed up who was able to preach that day and preached for all 10 minutes but he pointed out charles spurgeon in the congregation and he said you know look to the lord and be saved out of isaiah he just kept pointing at him he said, look look unto Christ, look unto Christ. And he said, you know, from that day, I was a brand new person. And really within a, a year or two, he started preaching and finding opportunities. This is still a, you know, a, in his late teens, <laughs> he started preaching and from all that wealth of reading that he had done, just started preaching out of that, out of his knowledge and what whatever God would give him, preaching some 10 times a week sometimes, you know, different settings and in people's homes and in churches. And and so he he just really grew a church to hundreds and hundreds and to capacity. And then they'd go move to another place or they'd build on to another church. And so he was just wildly popular there in the mid-late 1800s in London. And his uh, sermons were transcribed and sent all over the world. People would pay, you know, a few pennies per, <laughs> per sermon to get those wherever they could get them all over. Mm. Uh, so, uh, it just, as I known said, known as the Prince of preachers, known as the Prince of preachers. And I have, um, my, uh, Facebook page Spurgeon Speaks, and uh, you can find some of what I've done so far on there and we're recording and editing and getting those ready. I'm recording a sermon at a time, which man, they turn out to be like 45 minute sermons, but you know, recording those. And then some of his devotional work, the morning and evening devotions. Wonderful. Jeff Oliver, let's get to rapid
0: fire questions. Hey everyone, before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to talk about a way that you as a listener can support the show and the growth of Holy Smokes by becoming a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash Holy Smokes. Patreon is a support platform and for as little as $5 a month, Get bonuses like ad-free versions of these podcast episodes, holy smoke swag like t-shirts, and more. That's patreon.com/slash holysmokes. We're looking to get 40 Patreon supporters at an average of ten dollars a month. And once we hit that, we'll be able to pay for all the costs for hosting, editing, writing, posting. I won't be paying for that out of my pocket or through the volunteering of my own personal time. And as we grow that number to 100, and 150, 200 patrons, we'll be able to do two shows a week, hire a part-time assistant, and web developer, record on location and around the world, and more. I want to visit groups and get those stories from so many of you listeners that I hear from. I want to go to Seattle and I want to go to Dallas and I want to go to Charleston, South Carolina, and I want to go to Kentucky and Chicago and Phoenix, Atlanta, DC, Charlotte, back to Southern California and more. We want to help grow your groups and plant new ones for those of you in areas without active groups. So can you help us out? Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holysmokes. There's a link in the show notes. That's patreon.com slash holysmokes. Or if you want to make a one-time tax deductible gift, go to paypal.me slash Smokes club. That's paypal.me slash Smokes club. And both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire. <laughs> So when did you first try
1: cigars and pipe? When I was in college, I always say I smoked everything that's legal. Never anything illegal, by the way. But I tried them there and just uh, having never touched anything like that before, grew up with a grandmother who smoked cigarettes, um, Marlboro Reds all the time. And I wasn't going to touch cigarettes. But, you know, what else is there out there? So I found the Garcia y Vega cigars that you can buy in Walmart. You know, so we're not talking high quality here yeah but there was a tobacco store i remember in the in my college town and i went and asked what if i was going to smoke some higher end cigars or you know better than what i had been smoking and he pointed me to some really really light macanudos in like a test tube kind of thing Mm -hmm. you ever see those they've got the ones in the glass and they've got ones in a kind of a metal tube and i picked up a pipe then too and was just enjoyed the different blends there and smelled whatever. They had those big apothecary jars of, you know, about 10 of them sitting out there with with pipe tobacco in them. So just kind of did that and had a roommate who I uh, smoked a couple of his clove cigarettes and didn't really enjoy those much. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) that was a couple of things were my first entree into cigars and pipes. Which do you prefer, cigars or pipe? Probably a cigar. Yeah, the pipe just doesn't, it doesn't last very long, you know. I, I like to kind of have the the cigar lit and have just about that hour or so to converse or sit and think. But the pipe's a lot of a lot of work. You look a lot smarter with a pipe, though. I think. a lot, <laughs> oh, yeah. more, a lot more wisdom there. Favorite cigar is the C A O Flathead six sixty. That my I'm looking at my daughter because she knows she'll tell somebody. So that CAO Flathead 660, just a rich, um, I get chocolate cherry kind of flavors out of it. It's good.
0: Yeah, that one's definitely a favorite. I like the 770 just because it's that much bigger. That thing's giant. (laughs) (laughs) It is. That's a two-hour stick. It sure is, yeah. Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked?
1: Hmm. That's a good one. I I don't know. I know I had an, an Ashton just thinking... You know, I'm going to spend some money today. I've gotten the, it seems like a higher and I mean, so most expensive. I mean, I I stick to $10, 12 So like a $15 would be the, probably the most expensive, probably in the Arturo Fuente line, something like that. I haven't, haven't done the Opus yet, but. Best dollar for dollar cigar. I really like, and I got these, you know, you never know what you're getting in a sampler pack when you order online or whatever, but I think it's JR Cigars. There's one called La Finca, F-I-N-C-A, and I think that means the field or the farm or something like that. That's a great cigar, and it's just a couple of dollars a stick. Mm. And I just really, I think it's a hidden gem that mm-hmm. i when I see a pack with those. In them now I'd think, well, yeah, I'd love those. And I think they're meant to be a throwaway almost. You know, we'll just bulk up this order with these. We'll just throw those in. But I think they're great. Mm. Where's your go-to place to get smokes? I like. The two shops in Fuego, McKinney, and in Fuego and Frisco. And I choose kind of depending on who I'm going there with. You know, there there are some people who tend to go more toward the McKinney store or the Mm -hmm. Frisco store. And I love those environments. What's your favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? It's going to be whiskey or bourbon. So, any particular brands? Yeah. I've always, you know, and this is from years and years back but I always like a Jack Daniels but I found the like a 1792 is really good and I'm trying to think what I have on my shelf right now I like bullet especially like bullet rye with a an old fashioned
0: mm-hmm. those are good mm. most interesting person you've ever met through cigars
1: I'm not allowed to say you right
0: <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. a few people Can you, have know, said you that. want ask that
1: question for that reason <laughs> um that's a, uh, what do you think? I've met so many people and yeah, I I think one that, you know, nobody will know. I, I just, I walked into a place I'd left work for the day and was going to go to one of my key places, you know, one of my favorite spots. And I thought, well, I haven't been to Cigars International for a while. That's a much larger venue. And I usually just kind of you know, you can get lost in there, and, and uh, it's more of a sports bar feel sometimes the noise. And uh, But I thought, well, I hadn't been there in a while. I'll just see what's what's going on over there. And I I sat down in one of the chairs, the big comfy chairs they have there, and they're all kind of in a line. Found one that was available and sat down, and, and uh, the young man who was sitting there, he was also by himself. And uh, he just started, you know, mentioning a couple of things. He noticed that my uh, cell phone didn't have a case on it. He said, well, you kind of like to live on the edge, don't you? I mean, just that kind of thing that Mm -hmm. he mentioned my cigar, my little travel humidor that he liked. And so we just started talking and and, um, man, we just got in the deepest conversation about his life and his upbringing and how he wanted to raise his daughter and wanted to be, you know, he's a man of faith, but he really hadn't uh, delved into that much lately, really wanted to get back into his faith. And so I've kept up with him. Hmm. a little bit and i just thought man this was a divine appointment i mean of all um you know what's the line from casablanca of all the gin joints (laughs) in all the world but (laughs) of all the places i could have gone that night yeah and uh of all the seats i could have sat in there's this young man also named Stephen, who uh you know just a great um relationship there that helped him to uh, hopefully to further his faith and help me to see that, that God's, you know, got these opportunities out there for us. Best place you've ever smoked? I'd say my, my back porch. Mm. I mean, it's not palatial or anything, but it's, uh, when I get home from the radio program, it's usually about one or one in the morning and everybody's in bed and I can just go out and pour a drink. I can go out there and sit on the back porch there our yard has a fence there at the back, and then it backs up to a farm where there are a couple of horses. I can hear uh, coyotes in the distance. There's an owl back there. I can hear a cat once in a while walking that fence, and it's just quiet. And so I'll just sit out there and think and look at stars, and uh, that's my happy place.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Marvel or DC? Marvel. Favorite superhero? Not a Marvel superhero, but because my wife reminds her, reminds me of Wonder Woman.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Star Wars or Star Trek?
1: Star Wars, definitely.
0: Favorite food? Fried chicken. Ooh. Dogs, cats, neither, or both?
1: Not a pet person at all. Nickname
0: growing up or in college?
1: Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd that come from? You think there's another story there. Yeah. So... Charles Spurgeon was not my first foray into impersonation. Okay. <laughs> I used to be an Elvis impersonator without any kind of beard. Obviously, the, the older Vegas Elvis, not the young Hepcat Elvis. But yeah. but I just, you know, again, only child. Grew up, uh, you know, I would listen to music. I found Elvis music and singing into my hairbrush in the mirror and <laughs> found a, a way to do Elvis songs. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? Well, that's probably one of them. That, that I guess, would be <laughs> one of them, yeah. Because <laughs> I'll, I'll ask that. Hey, did you know I used to be an What? And, and For whatever reason, I don't know, but that I, I took lots of Latin, five years of Latin in high school. Mm. Should be able to speak it fluently, right? <laughs> to whom? <laughs> There's...
0: You're a reader, obviously. Yeah. With these books, what are your
1: favorite one to three books not titled The Holy Bible? All right. John Piper wrote Brothers We Are Not Professionals that helped me to see that the role of, and I would say anybody employed, let's say in Christian service, it's different from being a doctor, from being an attorney. You're not, you don't have a job title. It is, it is your lifestyle. It is your life of ministry that, so it's not a professional job to have a, to be a pastor. It's, there's something more, it's deeper to that. Otherwise, I, I think of the first book that I ever that I ever remember reading cover to cover, was um, the greatest story ever told, mm. uh, which is a book about the life of Jesus, and I just remember reading it and thinking I had never heard it this way before. I mean, I hadn't. I mean, it's it's very different from reading a, a King James Bible or even a New International Version Bible. It's just a story. the the richness of that story and just the way he fleshed out kind of like the chosen has done for us visually now and seeing the relationships that jesus had and how real he was and is and you said three the book um yukon ho which is a collection of calvin and hobbes cartoons (laughs) yes (laughs) yes
0: if you could be any animal what would you be
1: elephant why well, because the I just like you know the size is kind of lumbering through the forest, the jungle. But I found out they're very loyal. They're very family oriented and will stay with one mate for life. You know, you hear stories about an elephant visiting a grave on the year anniversary of you know their mm. elephant friend's death, and you know that's just odd to me that mm. there's a connection they have with each other. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? Where would I like to live? (laughs) Uh, My daughter just said, uh, um, off mic, she said, Australia. I'd like to visit there. I think I'd like to live in England, England or Scotland. Because of Charles Spurgeon, me trying to get the accent right. Mm -hmm. You know, I just have watched a lot of British TV and especially the comedies, but some of the dramas too, and becoming an Anglophile. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who's been the greatest influence in your life? That'd have to be, gosh, I really would would have to say my wife. I'm not trying to get points or anything. But <laughs> she, and I, and I hope it's, I think it's been two-way, have helped each other to grow so much and recognize God's uh, faithfulness and helped each other. You know, it's the classic thing of when, when hopefully any two believers who are in relationship with each other, but certainly husband and wife when one is weak the other's strong you know and we find that man i just can't get through this the other's there to to lift it up and it might change within a couple of hours you know it might be different this afternoon but you know we'll uh, i think we've helped each other along quite a bit
0: what do you do for self-care to rest to
1: recharge yeah i uh, i tend to be more introverted uh, anyway and and so just like to retreat and just have, um, have that alone time. I mean, smoking a cigar helps, and that two o'clock in the morning time that I mentioned before that uh, that really helps me to recharge and you know people wonder, well, why in the world are you staying up till four in the morning? Well, because I need that. Mm. you know you just need that time to disconnect mm. and think, what's the best type of cheese? Sharp, sharp cheddar.
0: All right. Final three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey?
1: Yeah. I've said from the moment I was introduced to the Holy Smokes through the Facebook page and all that it's a safe place. I mean, there, there are so many, there are people in ministry, people who are Christians who've grown up with a, in a kind of a legalistic, Pharisaic environment where you know we have lists of things that this is not allowed in your life this is not allowed this is not allowed and but recognize there's a lot more freedom in Christ it's not licensed to sin which I think is a lot of people's concern but it's man when you can have something and enjoy it and there's nothing really wrong about it and as it provides uh, that opportunity for you to connect with somebody else like nothing else would. I mean, I don't want to go around, you know, (laughs) what's the quote about wasting a a good walk on a game of golf? I don't want to chase a white ball around and and talk to people there. You know, that's frustrating. But we can sit in a place at my home or a cigar lounge or something and fellowship that way over a cigar or two or three. That's really good to me. I mean, that helps um, deepen those relationships. I mean, as men, we, most of the time, the way that we connect with each other Is uh, my friend calls it windshield time. You know, we're shoulder to shoulder facing the same direction. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. We're hunting together, watching a a game together, we're fishing, we're uh, in a car, you know, we're working on a car. It's always going to be us shoulder to shoulder, not really getting eye contact. Where I find that's different, where we find a depth of relationship too is smoking a cigar together. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to look at you while we're smoking cigars together mm-hmm. and talking and not be you know side by side. Mm-hmm. I just think that's a very different scenario. If you were to have a holy smoke with
0: any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. I know who number one's going to be. Yeah, of course.
1: So, I <laughs> uh, so Charles Spurgeon... I'd Actually, I like could get these people in a room together anyway. I mean... And certainly to smoke a cigar. But because they were contemporaries to Charles Spurgeon and Mark Twain. One of my three? I mean, you know, Twain, I think if he and Charles Spurgeon were in a room for a while, Twain might have been converted. You know, at least maybe over a period of time. But Twain, just, uh, just his mind, the way he thought and turn a phrase, you know, I just think that would be great. Um, I'd also like to see, I, I think, and if I'm limited to three, my third would be a toss-up between either Peter or John the Baptist. Mm. I think John the Baptist would be, be a lot more uh, uh, animated. <laughs> it's just the way I picture him. I think he'd, uh, he'd probably smoke backwoods cigars too, the, real ch- the cheap ones. But, <laughs> but So one of, one of those two guys, I think I'm picking John the Baptist. Nice. Final
0: question for me one year
1: from today. And I got a
0: bottle of the Tennessee whiskey that you love. <laughs> what are we celebrating?
1: I think celebrating that that we've gotten a, a great body of Charles Spurgeon sermons recorded and produced, and that people were hearing those, and that Facebook page, website, whatever, however we present it, is successful. Mm.
0: Jeff Oliver for being on the Holy Smokes podcast, my man.
1: Thank you so much.